Hey everyone, welcome to Required Reading. This week we get really into the history and the philosophy behind the book. This one is new and novel and fun because it is actually the person with whom I read the book. Uh, Dave Nikas has been teaching at Marist for more than two decades, and it's one of the teachers that inspired me to do what I do. Uh, please enjoy this episode. It's a little bit longer, but it's a really, really good discussion. So, thanks for all you guys do. Keep sharing, keep reviewing, and listening to the chaos in the background. Thank you. Welcome to Required Reading, the podcast whose title I eventually learned how to say properly. No. That's close enough. Um, this week we're talking The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, 1990, his sixth book. And we'll probably come back to him eventually, too. Um, it's a fashion statement. <laughs> Mike is struggling. My earphones we're, we're keep all struggling. falling off, yes. At the moment, right now, my car is yellow. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm Nick Hoffman, your host, and on panel we have my co-host. Mike Burns. Hi again. And? Oh, uh, I'm David Negus. How are you? Welcome, Dave. A consummate professional. Amen. The colonel. Yeah. Uh, so we are talking about a Vietnam book that I believe I first read in Dave's class, at least part of. Um, you know, some, which means when you assigned it, it was pretty new. It was like probably a decade um, old. I didn't actually assign the book, but I assigned part of the book. Right. Was this Contempt was, U.S. or what yeah, class? No, it was uh, the pre predecessor to Contempt U.S. I, I taught a class, uh, an elective called Post-War America, and it was America in the 1950s and 60s, and we did a whole unit on Vietnam. And while I was looking for books for that class, I didn't want to do, there's no real textbook that would cover all of that at the time. So I, I, looked, I looked around for uh, books in bookstores, that would speak to different topics. And one of the things was Vietnam that we were doing. So I, um, this was the anthology that we used yes, for the is. class. And it was an anthology of, uh, it's called The Vietnam Reader, edited by Anand. Stuart Anand. Yeah. And there's uh, poetry in it. There's um, memoirs. <clears throat> there's all kinds of things in there. Reviews of movies, everything. And w in it is a, you know, a huge chapter uh, out of the things that carried. Which chapter is it? Uh, I think it's. Um, Ask you a curveball question, right? No, I'm sorry, but it's. Uh, no, it's fine. We do this a lot. No, no, no. It's uh, it's called uh, spin. Oh yeah, yeah, spin. And then how to tell? And then how to tell a true war story, which I think is the really best chapter. The best chapter. It's the essence book. of the book, right? Yeah. yeah. So. Um, that was my, actually it was simultaneously my introduction to the book as well as yours. Because yeah. I had not read it before. Hadn't heard of it. I mean, but I'd always been interested in Vietnam literature because it goes back to, I mean, God, I was, I feel like I'm talking too much. But is it, I mean, no, we know. That's why you're here. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, when I was about 11, 12 years old, my dad got me a um, subscription to Time Life World War II. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my introduction to war writing and sure. books about war. And it was really great because it, it would come once a month in the mail and it was a different topic. Uh, you know, it'd be like, you know, combat in the desert or D-Day or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, what I liked about it was the pictures because, I mean, Time Life just had fantastic pictures. And some of them were a little graphic. And, you know, as an 11, 12-year-old, it really 
opens your eyes about, you know, what, what was war like? Um, so that, uh, that was my interest in war literature. Um, and then when I got to high school, there's actually a member of my family who wrote a book, going to plug here. Um, he, he's not related to me by blood, but he married into the family. He fought in uh, Vietnam. He was a helicopter pilot for the first air cav. Oh, wow. Um, and he was at the Battle of Yad Drang, which is like in 1965, 66. Um, he wrote a book in 1983 uh, called Chicken Hawk. His name's Robert Mason. And his uh, wife was my cousin, uh, Patty Sincotti was her maiden name. And anyway, so because of somebody in the family and it ended up getting on the New York Times bestseller list, I'm like, okay, well, I, I should read it. And plus it was about war. So I started reading it and that's when I became interested specifically in Vietnam sure. war stuff. Right. And then it just kind of went from there. And plus I was also named after my uncle who flew missions in Vietnam too. So I had two family members who were connected to the conflict. So uh, he had a different experience. He never even actually set foot in Vietnam. He flew out of a base in Thailand and did missions up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh, wow. Um, bombing the hell out of people. Right. And he didn't really talk much about it after. In fact, also the Robert Mason, the guy who wrote Chicken Hawk, my, my cousin's husband, he was always, you know, for when we would have family reunions and family vacations and such, he was just this creepy, to me, creepy guy who looked, you know, like he didn't want to talk to him. He was very, he was kind of antisocial. Sorry for laughing. Tur no, no, as it turns out, I did, what I didn't know was he, he was suffering really bad PTSD. Right. Sure. And uh, so... Um, that was what got me interested in the topic of Vietnam. And then when I got here to teach, I chose that anthology and, you know, and then later, uh, in your class, um, Carrie, um, listed the book as her favorite book while here at Marist. Right. And, and why um, is that? <laughs> she, she couldn't tell me why. Um, when, I asked her, yes. when I asked her the other day, because um, I knew I'd be doing this podcast, but she couldn't tell me. She, she said that she just remembered liking it because it was about war, um, and it was different, therefore, from other things she read here. But other than that, she you know couldn't give me specifics. Sure. But um, it is a... It is a book that draws you in. I mean, you start reading it, and you, you can't really put it down. Right, I mean, it, it stays with you long after, too. It's yeah. great storytelling. About storytelling. About well. storytelling. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, so I'm an English teacher, and but I'm roughly the same age as you, Dave. But growing up, um, like I never really got to Vietnam in my history classes. And my parents were of that generation. They never really talked about it much. So yeah. I always had this sort of feel like I have this hole about it. Like yeah. what went on? What was it like in that time period? So I don't know if you guys had that experience or. Yeah, that um, was actually the genesis of uh, the post-war class, actually. Was you, that, you know, there was the joke when I first started teaching here that, you know, history sort of stopped in 1945. You know, we just would yeah. get through World War II, and right. we would we would just sort of barely mention the Cold War because at that time, even in the early 1990s, it was still something that everybody, even the students, had some understanding of what it what it was. Right. 
and then we didn't really get into the nitty gritty and the specifics of it. So, yeah, I would agree with you. It, so that was also my interest in it. And plus also it was something that everybody who was a little older than us just by one generation had either been through or knew somebody had been through it or was protesting against it or had some strong views about it. So it's kind of like when you're younger, you like, okay, what, what are, what the hell are people getting this upset about one way or the other? Right. Um, yeah. So it was always a topic that was of interest to me. Yeah. Same. How about you, Nick? Well, I mean, something I've been doing this year is try to expand our class into the seventies, eighties and nineties, just cause you know, nine 11 was such an immediate punctuation mark at the end of the class that we've been talking about it pretty much as I've been teaching. This is my 14th year teaching and, you know, my first year teaching, we talked about it. But other than that, like, we kind of fizzle out and come back. And, and so Vietnam has always been a couple days, but <clears throat> since then, you know, like, I mean, hell, we're going to talk about Columbine this year for the first time in Amex. It seems like, ooh, but it's 23 years old. Yeah. <laughs> it was 23 years ago. Right. And so, but, you know. But, you know, I, I, I would say this. Events like that, you know, from, I don't know, Nick, what you think, but I mean, from a historian standpoint, mm-hmm. there is a theory that you have to you have to distance yourself oh, sure. from an event to really be able to look back on it with any kind of real historical perspective, rather than sure. be writing it at the time. Sure, yeah, because yeah. that context is still yeah. developing. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so I mean, I think it's better. I think the way we talk about yeah, certainly the way I talk about and discuss nine eleven in class is better now than I think better um, or more varied than more historical yeah because I mean you had to really I remember having to really Mm -hmm. watch how I phrased things when we would get into the whys of Mm 9-11 not to put too much discussion into American foreign policy because then people would think you were you know Blaming America for uh, September 11th, and, well, I mean, and then you would be labeled, you know, unpatriotic, and you, before you know it, you were the Dixie Chicks, you know, and you were, if you remember them, right? Oh, yeah. Weren't they sort of? Um, oh, they got they in got, trouble. Their trouble career first. was essentially just derailed, right, for well, criticizing the war. Yeah, I mean, historiography takes a while to catch up, but 23 years is a long time. Yeah, I mean, to true. be fair, when you first started teaching this, the war had only been over for what twenty-three years or so. Yeah, ends in seventy-four. That's true. Yeah, that's so, true. You know, and yeah. so Vietnam became part of the class early on, but even that, like, it's it's the boomer baby boomer war. It, yes, because they're the ones who are protesting it. They're the ones fighting it. They're the ones dying for it. The only thing they didn't do was plan it. <laughs> that's that's true. And, you and know, by the eighties and nineties, they were saturating um, pop culture with yeah. Uh, trying to we we're talking about nostalgia. I mean, you know, uh, do you remember there was a TV show in the late eighties called like was it called China Beach? Oh yeah, remember yeah. that one? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you know, Dana Delaney, had, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you had like, um, you know, Platoon and or even MASH, which was Korea, but it was, but it was really about, about Vietnam. Vietnam. That's right. right. Especially yeah. after all the takes over is, yeah. and everything is very heavy. Yep. 
you know, I mean, and then the new Hollywood era of, uh, is just trying to deal with it. Coppola yep. deals with it, you know. Um, Oliver Stone, of course, right? one of the Fourth yeah. of July, and then uh, Stanley Platoon. Kubrick deals with it. And he does Full Metal Jacket. Of course, that's more just about how do you take civilians and turn them into killing machines. Yeah, um, but you have a backdrop. No matter the war, but that that war was the the backdrop for it. Well, it has a lot to do with the self-importance of the war itself. And it is back based, I think, on... That's true. And it is it is based on a, a Vietnam memoir, uh, Full yeah. Metal Jacket. I think it's... Oh, is it? It's either Dispatches or... If I... No, that's... If I if die in combat, it's also Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Brian. Right. I think it's Dispatches. I didn't I know that. That's what it's yeah. called. Yeah. Well, and it's... I mean, we'll get to the book eventually. Don't worry, guys. Um, <laughs> Maybe. But, but, Maybe. But, but, I mean, what he's trying to do is come up with a thesis on the war himself as well and he realizes that you can't so he realizes what it's about is how does my generation tell a war story that's what it ultimately becomes yeah. and he blurs the line between fiction and non-fiction I think incredibly well um, and it's interesting because wars since have not had the same storyline I think Vietnam in some ways is the war of narrative I mean there, there's some good movies about the first Gulf War I think Three Kings is excellent it is good. Um, I think Hurt Locker's a good movie that's trying to say something, but the dearth of things that comes out, like... Maybe maybe it's a generational thing. I mean, I, yeah. I, I hate on the baby boomers, and Mike, you know this. Yes, is, I'm with you on that. I know. I mean, we hate on them. Boomers. And, 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 yeah, we hate the boomers. But, but I will give them this. I mean, they're, they're good storytellers. I mean, and they like to tell stories. Yeah. So. So, I mean, there, I think that whatever was going on at that, I mean, we, well, we know some of what was going on, but uh, I mean, just, at that time, I mean, it, it facilitated a lot of storytelling. Well, it explains everything, right? Like, they are the most important generation. So, no, I mean, but that's no, what they are. Right. That's why they want to go back in time oh. to go back when they were important again. And anything, so, right? I mean, it's, it's reciprocal. So what you're saying is the, the most annoying thing about them is also... The key to their the, the gift that they give us the good sure hey, gotta take yeah. the good with the bad which in in a way is kind of a great way segue into this book what I liked about it yeah was the nuance to the book how yeah. everything had multiple levels and I love that I don't like and I mean that's that's in that chapter of how to write you know a war story a war story is, story is yeah. is really is great because it I think. You know, I was thinking about this in prep for today. You got war. I mean, Mike, you can help out with this. I mean, the war literature in the West, the history of it. You go back to Homer, and then through Shakespeare, and it's generally war will make you a man. War is sure. glorious. War is a noble thing to sacrifice yourself for some cause or for somebody else and that kind of thing. But then you get World War One, and there's a different kind of modern war literature with like what, Robert Graves and uh, Wilfred Owen. Right, and, the war poets. And then right. Eric Marie Remark. And, and I, we had to read, um, did you read uh, All Quiet on the Western Front when you were in high school? Yeah. yeah, at one point we taught it here, I think. Yeah, we did, um, in ninth grade. I yeah. read it here when I was a ninth right. grader. Yeah. Um, and, and then that that's war is destructive. War is dehumanizing. Yeah. Um, but what I love about this book is it's, it's sort of even more honest than that because he's acknowledging that as 
dehumanizing and as horrific uh, as war is, it's also fun. Mm-hmm. Right. He you says feel that. more alive in that moment. Right. right. And O'Brien isn't. I mean, he says in other lectures like it shouldn't be called war. It should be called killing people. Right. So, but which is disturbing. I don't think people like to read that. No. But that's the truth. But it's the truth. Yeah, that's what it is. But you're right. And... He, he's conflicted, and he keeps going back to that because as awful as it was in his experience, there's he'd never felt more alive in many ways, which yeah. is. I mean, Interesting. I, I love the line where he says, "What is it? It's uh, it's like uh, something about war is ob- obscene, and if you don't like obscenity, I mean, you know, watch who you vote for." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like you know, uh, this is it. This is all of it, and it, what it does to people. And in a way, the the characters you run across in here that simultaneously are doing horrific things, witnessing horrific things, saying horrific things, obscene things, mm-hmm. um, are also, it has an element of like, it's a bunch of frat boys out in the woods doing f- fun things. Yeah. Uh, you know, so <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, that's disturbing for people to hear and it's disturbing insight into human nature which is you know the other reason I like the book too because it's you know and you know again I'll have to bring it up because you know it's Goodfellas one of my favorite movies I mean Martin Scorsese touches on that I mean why why do people join the mafia if it if it's so horrible filled with killing and all of that in the end he's he's actually in the movie in the end of that movie he's he's unrepentant there's no there's yeah. no, uh, oh, he's learned his lesson. No, no he hasn't. No. He's, he's like, I have to stand in like, like a schmuck like everybody else. Um, yeah, no, Brian talks about that. You want there to be a moral to a story. There isn't one. There's no moral. No. Right. I think all people, did you, did you find as a teach in this book that students really struggled with that? Because I know adolescents struggle with the idea of any story right. that doesn't have a moral or right. a definitive thing you can draw from it yeah and i think that's what makes great literature and this is my definition that there's an ambiguity there's a slipperiness there's a reason you revisit that's what this whole podcast is about what you think one time you go back out this is a completely different book yeah so students have a real hard time when they're trying to nail me down on like my favorite poem yesterday or something um but But do you you find that people have a hard time with ambiguity not just as oh, uh, adolescents, because I know I certainly did as an adolescent, but do you think people are having a harder time with ambiguity today? Well, I mean, we've talked about this before. When you're talking to students, it also has to do with the fact that they all do standardized tests, and that's the only thing they right. do. But I mean, I think if we want to bring it to the book, that's what the first chapter does very well. It's kind of in some ways the titular chapter of the things they carry, but he goes through the fact that this is what all of them are given, and these are the personal items that they are given, and then it gets... If all GIs are the same, then it kind of fractions off. This is what he wants, and this is what he wants, and oh, Martha. And, you know. Martha. I mean, but but that's that's what it is. And it's an excellent chapter, but, you know, the things they carried were determined by necessity. And that's how the. Then it's just a laundry list of the things that they carried. Um, And again, everyone who went to Vietnam knows a little bit about. Or, you know, I I had relatives who went to Vietnam. But there's those little things about them, you know, and it's illustrated in movies. Yeah, for me, though, that first chapter was also kind of a journey through my war literature reading. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the Time Life books that I had, you know, 
that I mentioned earlier, they they were not interpretive. They were the old sort of it was journalistic writing from the '40s. Basically, it was what you know. I'm going to age myself here. The Joe Friday approach, just the facts, sure. ma'am. You know. So I think that first chapter is about okay, literally the things they carried, and he goes to great lengths to how much did each thing exactly weigh. It's not four ounces; it's four point three ounces. You know. That's I mean, right. I, but yeah, I'll just jump in there because I love that section too. Oh, and, it's great. And um, just as a teacher of literature, like starting, up, they carried. Uh, USO stationery. So he goes from the literal to the figurative, and it, it's all in there. You talk about the title and, yeah. and what the emotional burdens are, and, and it's ultimately just, he ends. They will never well, that section with the they will never be at a loss for things to carry. Uh, and that's O'Brien himself. I mean, you uh, see him lecture, and I know he, he hates being pigeonholed, but he's the Vietnam guy. He's the guy that keeps telling these stories, and he's carrying this burden or carrying yeah. this mantle of storyteller and there, there's even it's a, all there it's awesome oh, and yeah and so there's so many levels to this book in that sense I mean, you have the literal things they carried the you know metaphorical things they carried um the things they carried before it, the chapter of what made him decide to comply with the draft right right the things he carried during and of course you know the things that he'll carry with him the rest of his life yeah um, yeah, and here's an even more, even an added dimension. Again, making you know, have, thinking about this book, I looked up online, you know, an interview with him. I just wanted to see what he was doing now in one of his mo- most recent interviews. This is this is adds another dimension to the things they carry, the title of the book. He says that over the years, when he does a lecture, he's had about 30 individuals come up to him after the he's done his presentation yeah. and say, I was in doubt as to whether or not to join the military. And um, after listening to you talk, I've decided I'm going to join. Mm. Right. And, you know, it, it deflates him. It, you know, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it, because he, from his point of view, He's writing the book to try to tell you this is what war is like as best as I can tell you, even though I've got to make up stories to do it, Mm -hmm. to tell you how horrible and dehumanizing it is. And yet these people are choosing to take from the book something unintended. And then he said it bothered me for a long time until I realized maybe that's just literature. Yeah. Where you come to a book with things that you carry. Oh, of course. Uh, and therefore, you're going to take from the book what you want to take based on what you came to the book with that you're carrying. Yeah. Yeah. So another added dimension is it's almost like, I don't know, performance. you got performance art, you got performance literature. Right, yeah. Where you're... Yeah, you're, and there's so many things to talk about, but that make me think. Um, O'Brien spoke at Lovett, which is a school here yeah. in Atlanta, maybe five years ago. And Shannon Hip and I, another English teacher, went and saw. And he's reading this. He was he read the chapter Ambush. Oh, it yeah. was great. Um, but as he's reading it, he's getting choked up. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, my God, this is 37 years or whatever after this happened. Who knows how many times he's read or given talks like this, and it's still affecting him. And part of me wonder, like, is this performative? Is this just who he is? 
and what he's selling. I don't know. I don't, I hope not. I don't think so. But the fact that I wouldn't put it past him. Though. No, but I think. Um, no, and I don't mean that as a knock. No, I know. I, I, I think once you cross the threshold of I'm going to make stuff up to communicate right, acting, a right? larger truth. Yeah. Well, you're you know you've crossed that threshold already. So right. you, and that's maybe the. I don't know. I, I'm kind of jumping ahead. I'm, I'm all in a million different directions here, but which is appropriate to this book. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, is that a danger of this type of literature? I th- I was also thinking about for this class. I mean, I love the book. I love it. But now I'm, and again, you know, it depends on when you read it and how old you are and what you're going through at the time you're reading it. I'm thinking of you know, we're in the era of QAnon, and. This book is not factually true at all, but it feels true. <laughs> but it feels true, <clears throat> exactly. And that's what which he is, wants to evoke. In but you. is that not the the cue? I mean, is that not it? Yeah. I mean, where I have no real evidence, but it feels like it should be true. And that's he says that, and he's <laughs> writing about his own picture. He says in the book in different ways too. That's what he's trying to convey. Which well, which was great in 1990. Yeah. But now we're in 2022, and you look at that, you think, well. Maybe that doesn't end well. I don't know. Yeah, or maybe right. it does. I, I don't know. I, but well, back to your point, like, I think maybe people are attracted or want to join the military because, like, man, he had something like such a deep, real experience. Yeah. Like, that in, in this era of like manufacturing and whatever. Everything's sort of, so artificial. artificial. I want something so real. I want to get out of really the, you know. Get, yeah, so I don't... Well, well if I may, so please do my job as a host. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so this book is structured in a series of short stories. And so to reference what Mike just talked about, uh, the chapter right before it is called The Man I Killed. And he talks about the story that he killed in Mike K um, about, you know, and it's more about what he thinks the guy would have been like. Yeah. Right? It's about his personality, that he was a kind man who gets pulled into this thing. Yeah. And then Ambush is about the fact that his daughter asks him if he ever actually killed someone. And then he is trying to talk about the massacre without telling her because he lies to her and then tells us the story of the massacre from the other point of view, uh, or the ambush, excuse me, from the other point of view, which is kind of the whole theme of the book. In fact, one of the things they carried, <clears throat> so to speak, is that the, uh, they carried all they could bear and then some, including silent awe for the terrible power of the things that they carried. Which includes, they carried the sky, the whole atmosphere, they carried it, the humidity, the monsoons, and that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to rationalize what the, not necessarily what they, they have to do, but who they are. How does someone become a killer? You know, this is the generation yeah. kill mentality. This came out, this book came out, was published three years after Full Metal Jacket, yeah. so I wonder if that's not part of it too, because what Full Metal Jacket is about is how you take people. Yeah destroy their humanity and turn them into killers and then the answer of the movie is you can't they're walking through the fire of napalm singing the mickey mouse theme and in this movie or this or, book or, wait a minute you you really think that that at the end of that movie that i think the end of the movie the, is talking they're about saying how, that you can't turn them into killers i think it's that you can't remove their humanity isn't that the point of it wow that's I hadn't taken that uh, that's interesting you you could be on something there but i i always took it as they were singing the Mickey Mouse theme because their their youth, their innocence was gone. They they were no longer those people, and that singing was a almost kind of wishful regression. Regression, yeah, almost like our seniors 
regress because sure. they know the end's coming. They're right. going out to the adult world. It's clinging to that little and bit. And they're clinging to whatever childish thing that they can they can get. But they, they, there's no going back. They they just participated in what can be described in that movie as like a, a gang rape killing. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're not going back. I mean, it's fair. I just I generally interpret Kubrick as saying, when we try to break people, they don't break. That's... I mean, because, I mean, The Shining, Jack Torrance goes over That's the edge, true. but his wife and kids survive. Um, in uh, Clockwork uh, Orange, Orange, it's the yeah, same thing. Right, they survive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even in 2001, when he meets the char child at the end, he's still a human being, and they watch him age and die gracefully. Yeah. So, I mean, I think... That's the, true. I think that's... I thought of it that way. Well, the first half of that film... That are in training, that guy breaks. That's his There's name. always oh, someone yeah. who does. Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's interesting. I I, I think. No, but that, I'm not I'm I'm not discounting. I think that I hadn't thought of it yeah. that way. Um, God, I I always took the bleak road on that one. You're jet um, Xers, it happens. I know. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's it's a kind of I, I took a nihilistic approach to of that course. one. That reminds um, me of a tongue necklace but, but, in a story. You, you were taking the sort of okay, they still have this spirit of innocence that the state will never get. I don't know. I, I grew up on 1984. I mean, well, yeah, state take takes it in everything. The ironic nihilistic state sense. State takes yeah. everything in yeah. the end. <laughs> to be What's fair, even love, they oh, took well, love never mind. from yes. Winston. They <laughs> took <laughs> it all. I mean, to be fair, I'm a millennial. We probably would sing the Mickey Mouse theme off into oblivion as well. Um, but, but I mean, no, this book. Oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. So, 87 too is also when Beloved came out. Mm -hmm. And that oh, is about. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she uses the term rememory there. That's right. And so when Shannon Hippon. I used to teach in AP Lit. We would pair this with, oh, wow. uh, with Beloved. Did you guys do that? Yeah. That's cool. So I like the that. idea of like you have this traumatic, and, and Shannon does a great job of like teeing up what traumatic lit is and trauma and how people process trauma and how it's circular and you retell the stories over it. And it's very much in line with um, with what's going on in Beloved. And, and Damn, I'm feeling adequate as a teacher. You guys did that spot. That's great. Yeah. No, that's all Shannon. <laughs> yeah, so the idea, I think he had to be influenced by that as well, um, consciously or not, but just the idea of revisiting something that was traumatic and retelling the story and and how you retell the story and how that changes as you're at different points in your life yeah. and how you view it differently. So, Well, I mean, if we want to just talk history, I mean, well, Iran Contra is 85 to 87 as well, so, yeah. you know, if you're looking at the military with raised eyebrows, you now have a generation of people who kind of went through Vietnam are now, you know, 30s, 40s, and they're looking at like, so what's the military doing this week? Oh, shit. Yeah. They're in, they're in Guatemala. <laughs> they're in Guatemala. El they're... Salvador. And, yeah. You know. So going back to, to when you taught this and when you took Dave's class, Nick, yeah. so how did you approach it? How did you approach oh, wow. this section? Do you remember? Or do you well, remember, I mean, it? I remember So the class was layered as actually very much like Amex's. Um, and, you know, credit to uh, Stuart and Ahn, like he's actually a fiction writer. And so there's there's this kind of lyricism to the to the class where we would talk about something in a historical context while we were reading and then kind of go back and forth. And yeah. occasionally Dave would crack out his guitar. Um, All right. All right. Nice. Oh, where is it today? It's been retired. Yeah. Oh, come on. It's fine. I mean, it, no, I mean... <laughs> A musical number would break up the sets, uh, but, oh, but I mean, yeah, the, the, but that's how it was. It was a way to explain how, because Vietnam is, first of all, it's a 10,000 day war that doesn't have a narrative. 
there's points you can hit. It's kind of like talking the Pacific campaign of World War II. It's a lot of little things, little things, little things building to a big thing. And usually the turning point we do, and we do in our class, is the Tet Offensive, which is the turning point also in Full Metal Jacket because yeah. it's brutal. But we don't trickle down to the, to the ground level very often because right. that's the problem. Like, we, we can talk about my life, for example, and that's a brutal, practical event. But at the same time, like we talked about with World War II and World War I, 90% of the time, these soldiers are sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. And that's really hard to elucidate. We have 28,000 some odd casualties. And the one thing I will bring up this year, which we haven't brought up before, is in 1963, right before Kennedy was assassinated, he had issued a document to the Defense Department that he wanted to pull out of Vietnam by the, by the time the election happened because he thought it was hurting his numbers. If we don't have Vietnam, at least the Vietnam that we have, that changes everything about America. Our culture is different. Our politics is different. Uh, we have presidential candidates that run on the fact that they were fighting in Vietnam. And we have a whole generation that feels different. And that's something that I'm trying to figure out how to talk about. Because talking about the, the average grunt in the field, yeah. the, the one thing I've been able to do is talk about why people were in Ohio were okay with the Kent State Massacre and thought that the students were wrong. Yeah. That's it. It's just so hard to wrap your mind I, around a war that lasts that long and seems to be meaningless. I, 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 oh, I don't know. It's definitely not. the war itself might be meaningless, but the right. repercussions are we're still dealing with. Yeah, for exactly. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, World War II is cleaner. <laughs> right. See, well, the, we like that way now, right? Um, Maybe. Yeah, I I think probably why I included the uh, a lot of different things from that anthology when we did Vietnam in the post-war class was it was my first attempt to because when I first started teaching history I, I, I was always doing the you know the big political big big picture story from the top sure. from the top down because that's the easy you got to do it you have to do it yeah sure I mean why are they there you know you have to explain that um, but having read a lot of different war literature what attracted me was the well, what's the view, what's the perspective from the bottom up, from the people fighting it? And I've always been, and if I have time, and that's the problem as right. a teacher, if I've got time, I want to show those different perspectives. What was the war like from, and if I had had the ability to do it, the only defect of this um, anthology is there's not a lot from the Vietnamese perspective. It would. No. It's great. It would be great to have included that in looking at this same right, event from all Tim of these different. Who is that? Have we? I mean, yeah. we were talking about it last time, but there's that uh, movie Letters from Iwo Jima, which is told from the Japanese perspective. There's two parts of it: Flags of My Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. Is there a version of that from Vietnam that you can think of? Um, the documentary Ken Burns. He actually does a really does. good job. Yeah, with he that. does a very good job with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Bill exactly. Bryan is sort it, of the through line in that. In that series himself. I have a question yeah. for you. Oh boy. When did you start teaching that class? Do you remember? I don't know if I, I'm gonna say 95, I think. So you started teaching it 20 years after the war ends. Yeah. And you used to probably get up through at least the election of Clinton, I would guess. Because that, that's a good punctuation mark at the end. You end with the Bush years. Cause I think I taught post war at least until 03. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, the end of that course in 1995 oh, probably wow. ended with HW. Oh, God, no. I think we probably... I ended... 
Reagan. The end of the Cold War. I mean, so ninety-one. Yeah. So, so the election of George H.W. I didn't really and, take it up through. But that was within four uh, years. I didn't That's take it up great. through. I didn't take That's it up huge. through. You know, I feel your pain. No, I didn't do any of that. But I'm just saying, if we did it now, you would be. What, 20 years ago or not, yeah, not even five yeah, years ago yeah you're right it would be okay. 2017 yeah. would be four years ago yeah that's true um, so we would talk God, about the election of Donald election, Trump yeah. God, I'm old I mean to your point like when I teach I don't try to make a judgment on Obama or Trump because it's too recent to see the long term absolutely effect. so like I'll bring up legislation like you can't not talk about health care but like whether or not it was successful is hard to say because it's so recent Exactly. But 20 years ago, you know, I was just, you know, talking with people my age. I'm like, do you remember the, yeah. the four trials of the century that happened within our lifetime? And they were all in the 90s, right? It was the Unabomber. It was Jeff Dahmer. It was O.J. Simpson and the impeachment. That's all within a year of each other. Yeah. You, you know, know, there's another thing, too, about memory, you know, and this book's about memory, storytelling, mm -hmm. what do you remember, what's factual, whatever, uh, what's true, what is truth. Um I think so many people by the 80s and 90s were drawing different lessons from Vietnam. I mean, we, we lived through that a couple of years ago. Remember when the Vietnam business group, that Vietnam vet, oh, that's the John Carroll bench group, out here. Yeah, yeah. They came over here and did a whole program. And, right. and I, had no, I had no problem with them having a, a monument put up here and, and, and all of that. It's, it's wonderful. But they had to include speakers who offered an interpretation of what Vietnam meant. And I can recall thinking I wasn't entirely comfortable with everything right. that the speakers were saying. Right. Sure. Um, and it got me thinking about we choose to remember different things from that war. How you tell a story. The, yeah. Exactly. The Pentagon, after the Vietnam War, got together and their way of approaching it was, of course, from a military standpoint, why did we lose? Right. Why were we unsuccessful? And they did a whole reassessment of how they handle the media. Yeah. And it led to um, the differences in how the Gulf War and the Iraq War were covered um, that we're still seeing now. And they yeah. severely restrain the press with embedded reporters and, and I tell my students I mean have you ever seen on the news at least years ago when Iraq and Afghanistan were still going on how many times have you seen on the news a dead American how many times have you seen on the news yeah. somebody in a body bag the only American you'll ever dead American you'll ever see on the news these days is in a coffin with a flag draped over it and you know the star spangled banner treatment um, well, it's because that's it. And you'll never, ever see a Iraqi or Afghan civilian dead at the hands of, of Americans. Right. Uh, it's because they're hiding the truth about Benghazi. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, and so, like, I mean, only, it's, this is only a partial lie. Um, yeah. But, no, I tell the kids, because we show them, uh, them loading some of the, the corpses, the, the, the coffins onto planes. Um, but it's a picture, I'm telling you, like, I, I lie and say this is an illegal photo, but it's because it could not be published here. It's a picture from the BBC yeah. of an American yeah. body being loaded in. Uh, but true. yeah, like, it's, and, and you know the picture, it ended up winning, um, I think it ended up getting in the National Geographic, but it's because it's a passenger plane and there's people looking out the window of the plane as they're loading coffins onto the bottom of the 767. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, it is 
exactly that. So, I mean, that's what the Pentagon drew. Yeah. I mean, that was their lesson. That's of how Vietnam. they tell the true war story. Yeah, that's right? how they tell it. You know what? We got to control the narrative, yeah. folks. You can just hear yeah. that going on inside the halls of the Pentagon. I mean, that's what they. That's how they think about it. There's no wider. Let's look at the limits of what we as a nation militarily can and can accomplish. Right. I don't think they've learned that lesson at all. Look at Afghanistan. It's the same. Well, I think one man learned they, it, which is George H.W. Bush, because that first Gulf War was four weeks. That was it. I, I think... But it's a diff, that's a different... That was a different war. Well, but it could have become the Iraq War very easily, but he opted to leave Saddam in power. Well, he was listening to... Colin, you know, Colin Powell. But, but I'm saying, who like, was a right. Vietnam vet. Right. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that there weren't individuals in the Vitalism. Pentagon who got to the, the power structure who might have drawn more nuanced lessons yeah. from Vietnam. But, uh, but I mean, like, to, to your point, that's kind of one of the things we, we talk about. Like, when we talk about Vietnam, like, I show that clip where Dan Rather is doing a field report. There's an explosion, and then he helps load the guy onto the helicopter because that's incredible. Or the the, the Saigon City chief of police oh, when he executes yeah. the guy on live yeah. television. Yeah, <laughs> which is a Marist connection. Think, yeah. What really? Uh, remember the Adams kid, Danielle Adams, and um, yeah, and she taught here for a while. That was her father, Eddie Adams, who took that photo. Wow, really? Yeah. 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 I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, like. Do you think you'd see that on the news these days? No, no it's because there's, the there's a lag. It wouldn't be on the internet. It wouldn't be, yeah. wouldn't be on the news. I mean, it's just funny. Like, you think they would have learned after uh, Jack Ruby killed on national television. But, like, it, Vietnam, you saw people dying on live television, and no one cut the feet. Nowadays, you wouldn't do no. that. Like, no. um, there's still those random clips uh, where, you know, there's, like, a, a an anchor person or a congressman, like, shoot themselves. But, like... That's like they immediately cut to black. That just doesn't happen. The the, no. the news is too uh, scripted. Right. It is. No. It is. It is. Was it McNamara or um, Johnson who said when we lost Cronkite, we lost the war? When Cronkite, I, I think it was McNamara. I think it was McNamara, yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. But to that point, like, <gasps> well, you get America's like grandfatherly voice there, and yeah. he says, this is... Johnson had a quote, war. but it was just expletive deleted. <laughs> Wiley sitting on the toilet. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Yes. <laughs> Here's what I think of Cronkite. <laughs> so what we need to do just now to kind of get us through the actual book itself <laughs> is talk a little bit about the things they carried. Now, as I talked when we first started, uh, the things they carried is actually a series of short stories, some more tied together than others, especially the first part. And Tim O'Brien plays a character called Tim O'Brien, which is a character <laughs> based on Tim O'Brien, the, the writer. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And he's kind of dancing through a series of, this is the story of the people I was with, this is the story of me back home, this is the story of how I tell the stories that I was back in Vietnam. So when you guys are talking about this in a classroom setting, because I've only been on the other end of it. How do you explain the story? How do you pitch the story? How do you make the kids understand what's happening? I, I mean, I always follow the kids' leads on, on that. And, and sort of the, the place to start is with their questions. What are their questions? And the question almost always universally is what's real? What happened? What, what, what's the yeah. real story here? And so from there, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go with all these different short stories that are linked together. And O'Brien's really sly about putting some real details about his life in there. Um, 
And so it's just enough to make you think that um, it's real, but it's not. And he's he's playing with the, what he calls happening truth versus story truth throughout. So I use that as a sort of lens to talk about storytelling and, and writing and fiction. And it's very like postmodern or um, in in the structure that way and metafiction, like fiction about fiction. So sure. those are maybe concepts that they don't know. And so that's a, a great way to do this. And I've only taught this at the AP level before. Sure. But I think, Nick, we could certainly do this um, in American experiment at the 10th grade level and honors level. I think mm -hmm. it might be interesting to, to get that in there. So um, that's well, how I mean, I've taught it in the past. With that in mind, how do they respond to the characters? Like, do they like him? Cause he's an interesting character that he's written cause he's a pacifist who gets pulled in and then kind of is witness and partial participant in these atrocities. And so, you know, like a comedian or a musician to deal with these atrocities, he talks about them. Yeah, I think the, the chapters that jump out the most are the ones they want to talk about are Marianne Bell, uh, about the, the American sweetheart who goes over there and is transformed. That's, um, a, that's a chapter that stops me. Yeah. That stops that me, a, Dad. You're that just is like, a really interesting <laughs> chapter. And then the, on the Rainy River chapter as well, yeah, where it's like good, he's yeah. nearly, is he going to like run to Canada or not? And it's really well crafted I, that way. And the Rainy River one pairs well with the... Um, the man I killed mm -hmm. because it's always almost like the Vietnamese um, mirror image of himself. He talks right. about how it's the Vietnamese history that compels this, well, at least his imagination of what drove the man he killed to join the Viet Cong. Um, he felt like he was being almost pushed there by Vietnamese history. Just as, you know, I think Tim O'Brien feels the same way that, you know, the, the American culture history uh, made him uh, cowardly, yeah, as he like puts the great it. Line to, at the end of um, yeah. that chapter, he says, I was a coward. Yes. I went to the war. I went mm -hmm. to the war, which is, a coward, which is the total opposite of, you know, how we in our culture would perceive um, being a draft dodger is well that's the coward you know kind of thing right yeah mm -hmm. right yeah i mean on the on the other end of the spectrum we have jimmy cross who you think is he, he's he's the leader he's the guy in charge but he's the one who pines for martha and is so distracted by that he lets two of his men die and like and so in some ways he he seems like he should be the soldier the one we follow but it just it all bites him in the ass. it's just he's an interesting comparison to tim o'brien's character yeah um, and that's the first chapter is him pining for Martha. So it's just yeah. an interesting kind of end to the story. And that's the first two or three chapters is Martha. Yeah. I mean, it, all of these things you're talking about are the things that draw me to the book, the ambiguity, the two ways of looking at things, the things are, but they aren't. Um, I love that. And I love also the fact that, I, you know, in the chapter, um, you know, how to write a, a war story. Um, yeah. is, is fantastic. I mean, that, that sums up everything. That if you're looking at a piece of literature about war, he says, um, and there's a moral at the end, you're being lied to. Right. <laughs> that's, just, that's just so true. Yeah, and if you've and, listened, oh, yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, and if you guys have listened this far, hopefully you didn't skip over the beginning, but that's the chapter I read a chunk from at the top. That's That was our in, a chunk from a How yeah. to Tell a War Story. Yeah. yeah, and another sort of one of the qualifiers is what he calls How to Tell a True War Story is that it never ends. 
Like, <laughs> I think that's the structure of the book itself. It's recursive and it circles yeah. back on itself. Um, and it causes you, the reader, to circle back on yourself because you're yeah. continually pouring over this. What's real? What's not real? It stays with you in that way that yeah. um, that your daughter totally. was hinting at. Yeah, You can't quite pin it down, but it's something that you yeah. keep coming back it's to. Mem- it, it's it's memorable. It's a memorable book in that sense. I mean, you don't remember every detail, but you remember the impact that it has on you when you read it. Right. It's a book about memory, too. So yeah, exactly. There's so many layers here. It's so great. Well, it's just, it's so interesting that this book comes out when it comes out, right? It's 1990, right? And so this is still when people like Ross Perot are saying there's POWs that we've left behind. We can't trust the government. We're a year away from the Gulf War and people, we win the Gulf War, but people come back with Gulf War syndrome and they're not quite right. And there's this PTSD theme here kind of too, that he's trying to rationalize what he did because... He can't rationalize what he did. It's just, it's interesting how this all, it feels very prescient to who he is. And there are scenes where he's walking around with his veteran buddies trying to rationalize this. Mm-hmm. And it seems to just kind of fizzle. There's, there's not catharsis at the end the way you kind of want. No. And there never will be. <laughs> no. That's <laughs> so sad. True. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, and, and what a great, I mean, for me, what I got, I mean, what, a, what an even greater statement against war um totally you know that there never will be for the people who were involved in it any resolution to any of these things that are raised in the book Mm. and um you can't help but feel um to me i mean even though these people don't exist they're not real they they seem so human so you 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 feel something for for them, and you feel, you know, that their humanity has been stripped from them in really fundamental ways, and you wonder if they'll ever, ever be whole again. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the answer is probably not. They're never gonna. They're gonna carry this <laughs> forever. Yeah, literally. So, um, and then there's a great chapter with Norman Bowker speaking of courage. Um, yeah. Norman's the guy that's just circling the lake, circling yeah. the lake, keep going back. And I always teach that. I use that that lens or that chapter as a lens to like pay attention to verb tense in that because he keeps using would have, would have, would have, would have. Mm-hmm. So sort of like what would I have done? What would I have done? And he's imagining this conversation trying to explain his disillusion to his own father. And he never does and he never speaks it. And so it's sort of like the what would have been, what could have been. Um yeah, and then yeah, there's so many just sort of symbols that the kids can grab uh, with Kiowa in the in the shit field and like right. the baptism and shit literally in that, and you, you can talk about that. So the Shawshank um, Redemption, he crawled through a pond, yeah, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. Ended out right. on the other side, clean, right. and everyone gets filthy from it. And that's then, right. But sadly, Norman <sighs> ends up killing himself at the end. Well, I mean, that's the whole story, right? Doesn't his girlfriend marry someone else? And like, yeah. So and uh, and like a World War Two vet. No one wants to hear his story, right? Like, and so he talks to himself. He has these imagined he has conversations, no one to tell it to, right? Yeah, he wants yeah. to. He even goes to like the drive-through and tries to talk to the person through the drive-through, and then that conversation doesn't have happen, and he just feels so sad. Yeah, um, sir, this is the way doesn't have, a, have an outlet. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, I, I, we can. For those of you who have not read this, some of these short stories are more related to others than not. Um, some are standalone and masterpieces like How to Tell a War Story. Uh, 
Is there one you want to talk about? I mean, we should talk about the sweetheart song of Trey Bong, Trey right? Bong, yeah. That's mm-hmm. the one with well, Marianne Bell. Marianne Bell. Marianne Bell. That one is that is a real that is a strange. It's a one. showstopper. <laughs> it's a strange one, but you really that one. You when you're done reading it, you have to put it down and you have to stop and think that one through. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the I, I I like it because it's it's such gender bending it's it's great it's like uh marianne is you know she's 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 female but she's going through the exact same thing that the the men the boys are and um you know well and we we need to talk about it very but i want to compare to one that's very short very easy very quick which is stockings because to me these are rumors that everyone's heard Right, like everyone's heard a guy who heard a guy who had a tongue necklace or an ear necklace, right? <laughs> right, like because that that was the boogeyman, right? Yeah. And so, stockings, which is a very short chapter, is about Harry Dobbins who had the stockings of his girlfriend yeah. that he wrapped around his neck, and he seems to get out of all of these scrapes, so they're his lucky charm. And then she dumps him, but he keeps the stockings anyway. And again, that says that it's a story that's so timeless, everyone sure. knows it. And so for this story of Marianne, holy hell, uh, so just really in brief, she comes to visit her boyfriend who's stationed in Vietnam, and longer and longer... Which is so fantastic. Which is Already you know this is complete <laughs> crap. I mean, this she is totally made-up story. And, and what's amazing is you can imagine this story being circulated in Vietnam as a, exactly how he describes it, as... Yeah. A, gr- a wish, a wish come true. Yeah, a wish come true. She she comes hey, and she's bring here. Bring your girlfriend over, right? Bring yeah. your girlfriend, your girlfriend. You know, a piece of home to make you feel uh, human again. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, to share the experience, literally to share the experience, so someone else knows and understands what you're doing. And then the fear that if that ever were to come to pass, she would share the experience. <laughs> Well, and, I mean, and literally, and yeah. go go native, as it were, and become like a green beret. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just unreal. And like she's, I mean, the, the the zines. I mean, the way my mind is imagining this as it's described in here, where she's in there with all these, you know, totally committed green berets, dude, and loves it, and is just. Right there with them. Going yeah. out on, yeah, so Going out summary, on patrol. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, just very quickly in summary, she's the girlfriend of <laughs> Rat Riley, who's the medic, mm-hmm. and by all accounts, he's already Kylie, done this yeah. once. Rat Kylie, excuse me. And he's good at what he does. Everyone likes Rat. So she shows up in like her pink sweater. It's like, oh, gee whiz. It's very, you know, Betty Sue kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And then turns out that like she's hanging out with the guys in camp and she's just a really good shot. So more and more she's hanging out with these guys instead of Rat. Mm-hmm. And they start taking her on patrol. And at one point in this officer's tent, Rat sticks his head in and she's dancing with the guys with a tongue necklace. Yes. Uh, and she decides to stay in the war. Uh, this leads to Rat's downfall where eventually he's essentially goes off the reservation and gets killed. Right. Um, well, no, it doesn't he, He's not he, even Rat's girlfriend. He's just telling the story, right? Oh, he's, right. Telling, he's the story. telling the story. So, yeah, right. It's the other layer there that he's telling the story, yeah. and, and he swears it's true. Right. Um, and then I, I listened to a talk. I wrote it in my book here. Um, O'Brien is speaking in Arlington, Virginia at a veterans thing, and he does a reading as he always does, and then he takes Q&A at the end. And someone asks him about this chapter, and he says, 
I swear people come up to me after every speech and like, yeah, I know that. I saw Marianne Bell over there. Oh, get out. That's what he does. Yeah, whether you believe it or not. And then I read another interview where he or says... Or is that conjuring up another story? Right. <laughs> another interview where he said what you started with, that he wanted to equate... And he was, he was a little pissed off as a soldier. Like, why am I over here? And why aren't women fighting for this? Why do I get drafted? You know, what would we do if we just drafted black men? What would we do if we just drafted, you know, Italian men or something? So it's like sort of sharing the experience regardless of gender. Um, which was sort of the genesis of that, what he said. But he swears in that. And again, what, what is true or what's not, that people come up to him and swear yeah. that they knew of a Marianne Bell as someone that goes native. I also like the point he made in there where, what, I don't know if you caught that line where um, one of them said something like, you know, to hell with the idea that if we put women in charge, we'd never have any wars anymore. Right. I, I, that is, right. I, that struck me as just pure gold i mean that's absolutely true i mean obviously we've never tried that and you know we have no empirical evidence but i suspect uh women are going to behave no differently in power than power men. corrupts right exactly right. Yeah. uh the same um and women i mean hell and that also plays on you know some vietnamese history the you know the trong sisters uh, who were great vietnamese patriots um you know they had a long history of um female fighters mm -hmm. and in Vietnam as well. Oh yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, and especially coming from a, a person from his generation, what they were raised with in terms of gender roles. Um, I just think the Vietnam war could be an interesting experience in that. I mean, that's touched on in uh, full metal jacket where the sniper who takes out oh, right. five oh, or six of them, Turns out to be uh, a female. Mm -hmm. um, I will yeah. also say the funny thing to me is this is after How to Tell a War Story. And what does he say a good war story is? It's hard to believe. It does not suggest good behavior. And it is not uplifting. It's, so yeah, this exactly is the most it. true of... And that, that hits all three, doesn't it? Exactly. And that's what he's so brilliant. Like, as he's listing them off in that chapter, you think back, oh, he did that in that earlier chapter. He just, he, and then uh -huh. you realize, oh, he does this later. And so he's... <laughs> He's checking all the boxes for his own definition as it goes. This is, I mean, I, you know, what makes a good book, what makes a good movie, what, for me, uh, you know, all these years later, I, if it's a mirror to us as humans, it's, it's good art, mm -hmm. you know, where the, the, the artist is not, or the writer is not moralizing. I mean, it, it's just holding up a mirror. Right. This is us. Whether it's true or not, right? Yeah. It doesn't so even idea. have to be true. Right. Factually. But if it, and obviously this book, given how it was received and how people feel about it, um, it resonates a truth or truths beyond factual evidence or anything real. Yeah. Or that may or may not have actually occurred. And obviously this story did not happen. I mean, th there's no way this could have transpired. Yeah. Marianne popping off of a, a Huey helicopter in her pink sweater and <laughs> capri, pushers, ca yeah. capri pants or yeah. culottes, right? Well, I mean, there's even like... <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it's some oversized... Like, I mean, that's you know, totally uh, a GI fantasy. Well, you, come on. Even, I mean, you know, you're there in combat and, oh, here's Marianne, you know. Uh, 
Well, and again, you, you, you're, you're depicting a scene out of Platoon almost where she's yes. like dancing with the tongue necklace and, or or even like her cutting her hair short. That's a scene right out of a movie. Well, you know, I also, when I read that, I also thought of the scene in um, Apocalypse Now where yeah. they, uh, there's the, the USO show that's in the middle of, you know. An active war zone? Yeah, an <laughs> active war zone. It's totally unrealistic. There's no way that could possibly happen. And they're helicoptering these people into a frontline area, and you know it's. And yet, I mean, I know Brian writes about that in the the things they carried, like the ridiculous things that the army is sending, like basketballs and typewriters and stuff. And yes. so, yeah. as bizarre as it is, there was like ridiculous stuff that they're being sent, as if they can. Use oh, that you know, and they, they they also, and I know this is is I don't know if this is appropriate for our little podcast here, but I mean, the army did actually also have. I mean, in Vietnam, um, brothels that yep. they oh, yeah. uh, maintained and ran and, and even provided security for. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can look up things where GIs are being asked to, to provide security and they objected saying, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a pimp. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and so the Army's doing these things that are. are totally off the wall, just... How, how, as a 19, 20-year-old, can you, can you process all of the craziness you probably saw in your time, your time there? I mean, it just, what an education. I mean, you have to constantly remind yourself as you're reading this, these people are 19, 20, 21 years old. And that's, I can't, you know, fathom being exposed to all of that at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. in the crucible of a war where you could die at any minute. Or, yeah, but or outside, yeah, outside of the the danger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> outside of just that, you know, the, the life threatening danger, and the fact threat. that you're also an executioner at times. Yes. Um, beyond that, the, just the other nuttiness that was going on. I mean, how do you ever? I don't know. I don't know how you leave that. You can't. You don't. It's with you forever. Yeah, yeah that, that sort of makes me think of like Catch Twenty Two or something that like gets yeah. to the, the heart of the ridiculousness of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's partially why so many of these movies at times try to play at the comedy absurdity of it, right? I mean, like even you know Full Metal Jacket when they're in Saigon City or or whatever, like. It's absurd because, yeah. you know, not a hundred miles away, it's people being torn apart by shrapnel, but here you're enjoying right. a beer. Right. Well, there's this scene in Full Metal Jacket where I, I love Stan, you know, Stanley Kubrick using uh, the, the surfer song, Bird is the Word, as they're going through. And they're like, you know, firing a, a tank at a wall and, you know... Or I mean, it's totally, uh, like, what are we doing? The scene in Apocalypse Now, before we get the iconic line, "I love the smell of napalm in the morning." Yeah. They're surfing. Yes, that's <laughs> right. That's and right. Huey is dropping the napalm off in the that's distance, right. that's and right. they're under heavy fire. Uh, uh-huh. It's Robert Duvall. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is Robert Duvall. It's, but it's just got to be five feet out there, son. And yeah. Everyone else is ducking, and he's <laughs> sitting up, and he's like, "Smells like victory." And you're just like, what is this? And I mean, that's, that's you know, and that brings up the passage, you know, from, you know, How to Write a War Story, where he, where he writes, uh, what well, war is hell, but not that, but that's not the half of it. Because war is also mystery and terror and adventure and courage and discovery and holiness and pity 
and despair and longing and love. War is nasty. War is fun. I mean, war is thrilling. War is drudgery. War makes you a man. War makes you dead. Yeah. I mean, he nails it. That's that's it. I mean, I, I, I heard one veteran one time say that you cannot go through combat detached. Whatever you ultimately feel about going to war, um, you, you can't go through a combat situation and, and just be emotionally not there. Um, you're trying to kill somebody, somebody's trying to kill you. And that... I'm sure it puts a charge through, which explains, I think, why a lot of veterans, uh, one of the symptoms of PTSD is is they they thrill seek. Mm-hmm. There's a recklessness to their behavior because it um, it reminds them of the thrill of, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not my bag, but I totally get people who are adrenaline junkies. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're almost going to die, there is a little, you know, I mean, it's why roller coasters are fun, you know? and yeah. As a way of focusing your attention. Oh, yeah. yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. I, as I'm t- I, as I've been told, right. I don't yeah. know. I'm I mean, lucky. I and, haven't had that. And you know, is that something we want to discuss too? I mean, he's trying to communicate to people who, because the audience for this is, you know, us, right? Who don't know combat, mm-hmm. don't know war. I don't know war. This is as close as I'm going to ever get. I think. Um, hopefully sure hopefully yeah um, and I think that's what he's trying to do here but I think there's also a frustration that he must have that there's a barrier that will never be crossed he he cannot it's almost like this is this is only just partial yeah well and I will say there's two things here that this I, is inadequate yeah <laughs> I, I think there's two things about this that he he does a very good job on that I think we have a hard time putting our finger on, which is there's no real fronts in this war. There's like zones, there's safe areas, Saigon, but even Saigon gets attacked by the Tet Offensive. So there's this concept that we see in Iraq and Afghanistan where you're never safe. And at any point, that could be a landmine. or And that's what leads to so much PTSD between then and now, yeah. um, which I think he does a very good job of describing. But the other thing is... We, we, we don't have tourists to Iraq and Afghanistan yet. He, in one of his stories, does go back to Vietnam right. to lay moccasins where his buddy died, or at least where he thinks they yeah. died. The idea that we have Vietnamese tourism, which we do, we can go to Vietnam now. It's just, in 1990 apparently, it's just so baffling. Um, there's a joke from It's Always Sunny yeah. where Frank goes... Ah, the things I saw in Vietnam. He goes, Dad, you didn't go to Vietnam. You were there two years ago for a conference. And he goes, yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 but, like, there's this idea yeah. that there's there's not a Disneyland Baghdad that we can go to. Oh. But you can just go to Saigon on vacation. You can go to Ho Chi Minh City. It's, that, that's another kind of disconnect we just don't have. Um, at least you can go. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed when I see stories from Vietnam about the place now and how they receive Americans. I'm, yeah. I'm in awe and I'm, this is just a side note. It has nothing to do with the book. I mean, tangentially cause it's what deals with Vietnam, but I don't know if we would ever respond the same way they have to Americans. Mm-hmm. If the situation were reversed, 
Fair. We, we laid waste to that country. Um, By all accounts, they receive Americans with total graciousness. And you could say, is that because, you know, they're bringing money? money? Mm-hmm. Is it? Or is is there something else? I, I don't know. I, I think for the Vietnamese, I think they, I don't know. I, have they dealt with the war better than we have in the sense that have they, I don't think they've put it to, to, to bed, um, but I think it's, what I mean is, no, I mean, yeah. th- have they understood that, okay, it's done. That was then. This is now. I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, and for them, they also fought it for even longer because <laughs> it started with the French. And the costs were so much higher. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean. The, it, it was this just a resilient people who, um, this is, you know, what they have to do. O'Brien touches on that when I saw him at, at Love It a couple of years ago. He started off the talk saying, uh, I was getting dressed for my sh- you know, my speaking role tonight or my school visit, and uh, I pulled out a shirt that my wife had picked out for me, and I looked at the collar, and it said, Made in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. wow. And he said, I just started weeping. And then just sort of the complexity of that, like yeah. they were yeah. fighting for that, and now it's it's a very capitalist, even though America ostensibly did lose the war, pull out, mm-hmm. is Vietnam better off now for our having been there to your point Dave or they've just moved beyond it or I don't know but I, don't he, know. I mean he obviously has a complicated relationship with that oh sure yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know I when I think and see those stories I'm always amazed yeah. I mean it's I mean that's resilience that's toughness that I have to have complete respect for and, and the ability to comport themselves the way they do receiving Americans mm-hmm. um Generally, every one of those tours, they go incredibly well, and the, the, there's this it's alacrity, real yeah. graciousness that they have um, for receiving Americans. Who, frankly, I mean, I'm, you know, most Americans who fought in Vietnam, a tour was just over a year. Uh-huh. I remember we had Kim Fook come talk to us at Eric Maris. Oh yeah. So she's the woman, everyone knows that photo, yeah. the young girl yeah, the who's running from the napalm clothes yeah. have been burned off during, were you here? You weren't here then. I was here. Either yeah. that's a student or not. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, she was incredibly, like there's a great story where she reunites with the pilot who dropped those yeah. bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. that's just I don't, can you imagine people in America behaving that way? Not I currently, no. 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 Hell, we're still fighting the Civil War. I, I, mean, d- I know. Yeah. I mean, let it, let it go. Right. <laughs> it's just, Please. I mean, and if the Vietnamese people, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not speaking for all these people. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure they haven't let it go. Sure, I'm sure there's people from Vila that are not happy with Americans. Um, I don't know. I, I, I saw one where they went back to Mila, that village. Oh, really? And I, They do it know, in Burns, right? Yeah, I think so. One of the, some of the people talk? Yeah, it's... I. They talked. I don't know. I mean, I wonder how long it took the Germans to be that. I mean, I guess Germany is different because immediately we're defending them against the communists. But what about the Japanese? Like the 60s? I mean, we did drop two bombs on them that were significant. Not to mention the 250,000 others on Tokyo alone. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe we just like apologize real good. 
<laughs> no, that's not true. I don't have an answer. Um, I, I quote uh, George W. Bush after we... Uh, not George W. Bush. I'm sorry. George Herbert Walker Bush. Not the strategic guy? No, no, no. His father. After uh, we shot down... Read my lips. The, yeah, read my lips, Bush. Uh, after we shot down the Iranian commercial jetliner in 1988, mm-hmm. and then when... It was disclosed that everything we said about that incident proved to be false. Completely wrong. It's just another, uh, you know, USS Maddox, Tonkin Golf incident, um, and it all came out the next year when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was president, and uh, he was asked at a press conference, "Would he apologize for the United States?" And he said, "Quote: I will never apologize for the United States of America ever." Four more years. Four I mean, years. that sticks with me too. Sure. Because I, I remember seeing that on the news and thinking, good God. I mean, human beings make mistakes. I think countries can. I mean, it's not hard. And that's why he pardoned Casper Weinberger. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like, it was a big deal when, like, Clinton apologized. Was yeah. he the one who apologized for Nam? I mean, I know he tried to normalize no, relationships with Nam. I think he did. But, but, like, I mean, it was when they were talking about reparations in the 90s, and he said, like, yeah. slavery was wrong, and people were like, gasp. You're just yeah. like, that was 30 and years Carter ago. Carter gives back the canal zone, and we all, you know, there's a collective freakout in America. There's a giant statue of him by the cathedral in Panama City. I've seen it. It's like 10 feet tall. He's giving a thumbs up. Yeah. Um, really? No, I'm there giving the thumbs up next to him. I went down. Yeah, okay. Of course. You've been to Panama? I've been to Panama. God. I flew over the canal. Nice. My dad did shady dealing. <laughs> there was a French dude who wanted to open a resort there that my dad knew, so he helped him with the paperwork. Oh, nice. That, that's my dad's bread and butter. Getting free vacations. Um, <laughs> anyway. Any, any last minute things you guys want to touch on? I don't know. I mean, we just go round and round. But, um I mean, it's I, such a brilliant book. That's all I can say. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. And you revisit it and keep thinking about it and it stays with you and plays with your mind and in all good ways, the, yeah. the ways that good literature should. I mean, just think it's of true. all the conversations we've had today. Very little of it is like based in the book itself, but this book true. spawns these things and just sort of draws it out. So. It's true. Um, I will say it's, it's not unfortunate, but the current class you teach contempt doesn't really do history in the same way, so you don't really talk about Vietnam, at least like this. No, we don't. So um, you don't really have an opportunity to assign it. Um, no, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm waiting for the book about Iraq or Ooh. Afghanistan that's you know like this or you know will be that novel from those conflicts I'm mm-hmm. sure they're coming um, yeah that's I mean and to your point the thing that is so good about this book is it's so digestible you can give it to a high schooler and they can read it they'll want to talk about it they might need some help they might need but you can give it to them they can just read it the only book that came to mind about what you were saying is Generation Kill uh, which is about the Iraq yeah, invasion, yeah. but it's not the same. It's 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 written by a journalist. It's much more impact. Like mm-hmm. this is a book that is told by someone who knows how to write fiction, tell a good story, right. and the language is always very simple. Whenever he gets too military-ish, he starts to subtly explain what it means without saying, "Here's a vocab sheet," 
And that's what makes it so easy to read. Did which, you ever use a vocab sheet? Because there are some uh, oh, acronym, like, acronyms yeah, in here LZ, that, you know, R of N, LZ. Yeah, yeah I, I shared, there's something I found online where another teacher had, like, spelled out all those. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would need to do that yeah. if you were teaching this to right. high I mean, school I know kids. I did the first time <laughs> I read it, having not been Yeah, there the are military. some of those acronyms I didn't know what they right. were. I know some, many of them I already knew from having read other Vietnam uh, novels and books and, and such. Um, yeah, um, it's a great book. I, it's an obscene book. Yeah, but it's war. I mean, yeah. war is obscene. And if you know any veterans, they can s string a few words together anyway. So yeah. I think it's very realistic sounding dialogue. <laughs> very much so. I just love the. I mean, there's so much about, it, but I love the ending. Where he's thinking about Linda, the little girl. We didn't oh, talk about yeah, her. the dying, the nine-year-old uh, right? the, the tumor, right? The brain yeah. cancer. Yeah. yeah, that's tough. That's it's almost like a recall of. He's trying to relate his first experience with death mm -hmm. and the haunting nature of that. Yeah. And so you know, it says there's one point where it says, "Oh, that's what Linda said to me after she was dead." Um, it keeps coming back to this. It is a good way to end it because when you think about it too, there's also the element where he, isn't there a kid in the class who rips her mm -hmm. her uh, cap off to expose the the scars from the brain uh, surgery mm -hmm. to to deal with the tumor, and he chides himself and is um, angry at himself and disappointed with himself for not having stood up for her. Yeah, it just opened her. Even now, when I think back on yeah. it, I can see the glossy whiteness of her scalp. She wasn't bald, not quite, not completely. There were some tufts of hair, little patches of grayish brown fuzz. But what I saw then and keep seeing now is all that whiteness, mm -hmm. smooth, pale, translucent white. I could see the bones and the veins. I could see the exact structure of her skull. There was a large band-aid on the back of her head, a row of black stitches, a piece of gauze taped above her left ear. This, yeah, you know, when you read that, it's true. Another thing I'm thinking about this book, it is incredibly visual, this book. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and, and in a way, that is maybe how you might remember traumatic things. You don't remember all of what happened, but you can recall that little detail of something you mm -hmm. saw that yeah. was, that was, Horrifying. It's funny you say that because last night I read or finished uh, Jeff Rumiano in the English department had given me O'Brien's Dad's Maybe book, which came out in 2019. Yes. And essentially, it's a love letter to his two sons. He didn't have kids until he was in his 60s, I guess, or, or 59, 60. Um, and it's just all these anecdotes. But he talks about how memories come to him in these like four second flashes, almost like videos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and he is very deliberate about. Hemingway is a hero of his, and so writing at the sentence level, trying to craft that perfect sentence. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that passes. Even as I'm reading, I mean, you're right. It's just so vivid, vivid, so visual, and then boom, he's, he's out of there, and he's he's going in a different direction. Mm -hmm. so. It's like the the chapter on the man I killed. I mean, he goes. I mean that that's an image you you you're not gonna. It's not gonna leave you. Or the the one I forget which story it was the one where the guy uh is shooting the water buffalo oh yeah the kids always ask about that one too yeah. they systematically torture the water buffalo yeah to what's death. one yeah. guy who does that right because he's angry his buddy got yeah. killed and um yeah and that isn't there a 
is there a description about um yeah yeah where he later on says that he uh people come up to him afterwards and <laughs> after hearing all of these things they're most, most upset about, about the, the water, water buffalo, buffalo story right. yeah and he's he gets pissed he's like were you not paying attention yeah and it's it's such a great way to explain the for a civilian not being able to understand behavior like that. Yeah, and it came up. I taught this for um, the evening series last. I did one night on it, and I should have done a whole three series on it. But that came up in, with the adults I was talking to. That is that a metaphor for Milai? Like this mm. senseless slaughter, this senseless, oh, this completely innocent little creature. And my father-in-law was in that, um, and he was in Vietnam, but he was like, um, you know, not in the combat zone. Um, sort of off base um, or on base, I guess. And he made the point like the water buffalo is like the family's treasure. That's what they, mm -hmm. that was a huge sort of a valuable resource for them. So for them to kill that is just for no reason. It's really insulting and destructive to in a lasting way. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a scene that definitely sticks with everybody. But the, the last line where I was getting to before, I don't oh, know if we want to end this. No, I remember all over the place, but that's what this book does to you. But he says, I realized that it was Tim trying to save Timmy's life with a story. And so here he is, an adult, reflecting, reflecting back on what the story of, you know, the fictional Linda was as a girl, but he's still telling the story. He's retelling the story. So it's the perfect way to end this book that yeah. is about storytelling. Yeah. And how to tell a true story. There's really no beginning and no end because he's going to continue to go back and tell that story. Totally. And there's so. that whole question of innocence throughout the whole story. Yeah. Right? His daughter, that girl dancing through the burned out village, like, and they all try to overanalyze it. And he doesn't have a daughter. He has two boys, right. but he mentions in some interviews that yeah. he made up that daughter because um, that's the perfect sort of you know, voice of innocence. Yeah. The, the daughter, the little innocent girl is going to ask you did you kill somebody yeah. daddy and he says yes i did and maybe i didn't and both are true that's right i think there's a lot of connections between this book and poetry written by one of my favorite yeah you've mentioned this guy w.d right, right. Yeah. Uh, where he has a poem uh in which it's that exact thing whereas it, they're driving by a vfw and there's a there's a, like a howitzer out front you know, and, and she says, is that the kind of gun you used? Um, his daughter asks him, and then it leads him to, that's the whole basis of the poem, where he, you know, is saying, how do I tell her? And he says, no, I, I use a smaller gun. And, and then he, it causes him to think, you know, when is the right age for me to tell her this, to tell right. her this, to tell her this? And it's like a progressively more and more obscene and, horrifying thing and it's like yeah he's that's what's in his head when he sees that and when she asks that question and he has to think can she when can she hear this mm -hmm. yeah. should she hear this should, should she ever hear right. this or should that be the story we tell instead of these sort of sanitized yeah. versions yeah there's yeah. so many layers here yeah well, on the fact that maybe we shouldn't tell the story, uh, <laughs> sounds like we all recommend the book. Um, 
But I wanted to thank everyone for listening, tuning in, subscribing. Thank you to the people in, at this point, 18 different nations who have been listening to this podcast. And uh, for sharing it and reviewing it and giving us all the feedback we've been getting. Uh, as you guys know, our season generally ends uh, in June. But we will be working on some summer projects to see if we can keep it going this year. And we start planning our new season soon. So if there's any books you want us to touch, reach out. And a few people have, and we'll keep you in mind. Uh, but I'd like to thank Dave, and I'd like to thank Mike, and I'd like to thank all you listeners. So, thanks. Thanks. This is fun, guys. Thank you.